Hi, and welcome to the first episode in a special series of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Robinson Meyer, I'm a reporter at The Atlantic and a journalism fellow at EPIC. Over the coming months, I'll be talking with the University of Chicago scholars about evidence-based actions the U.S. can take to confront climate change. The set of policy recommendations, which are very relevant to the conversation happening in Washington today, are from EPIC's new U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap, and they touch on everything from how to structure a clean electricity standard to how to revitalize coal communities. I hope you'll join us for this roadmap series. For our first conversation, we'll talk about one of the thorniest, most famous, and most important issues in climate policy, carbon pricing. We'll also talk about one of the biggest questions around carbon pricing, which is how you can impose a carbon price without driving industry overseas and without basically just exporting carbon emissions. It's a phenomenon called carbon leakage. My guests today are David A. Weisbach. He's the Walter J. Bloom Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. And Michael Greenstone, the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics and, uh, most importantly, the Director of EPIC. So welcome, David and Michael. So, Michael, let's start. Can you remind us of the, the general idea? What is a carbon price? What is a carbon tax? general idea of a carbon price, which can t take the form of a carbon tax or come through a cap-and-trade program that restricts the amount of carbon that can be emitted in a jurisdiction, is that if you're going to dump garbage into the atmosphere, uh, you should pay a penalty for doing that. Uh, and part of the reason it has so much appeal uh, from an economic standpoint is that, in, 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 at least in its fullness, if applied throughout the economy, uh, it unleashes market forces uh, which have delivered so much good in so many other contexts to find reductions in carbon uh, inexpensively and will ultimately lead to uh, getting the cheapest tons uh, of reduction possible. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I think given where we are with the climate problem, uh, we should be on a tons, tons, tons program and looking for the cheapest tons like, you know, uh, wild zealot and markets help us do that. Now, do you see a difference between, let's say, a carbon tax proper and a carbon price set through a trading scheme or a cap and trade scheme or a cap and dividend, any of these other methods for imposing a price? I think there are all kinds of fabulous debates that go on inside universities like the University of Chicago uh, about which one you should like better and under what circumstances. And I, I definitely want to do a call out to my former uh, friend, Marty Weitzman, who is no longer alive, who wrote a very seminal paper helping us think much more clearly about that. But from where we're sitting right now, uh, that is a third order question in my view. Uh, the first order question is, is it gonna to continue to be free uh, to release CO2 into the atmosphere that's causing climate change? If you forced me to, uh, I think uh, we really do need to make sure that the innovation machine gets running. Uh, in terms of finding new low carbon techniques and energy sources and ways to remove carbon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and probably having a stable price, uh, which a tax gives and a cap and trade program does not. Uh, there's, you know, they, that would probably tilt me a little bit towards that. But honestly, uh, you know, I like vanilla and chocolate and I'd be happy to have either. 
often when people talk about carbon prices, they talk about revenue neutral carbon prices, which means the full value of the price is rebated back by the government to taxpayers, basically, and that's to avert these political discussions over the proper size of a government. Now, I noticed in the chapter, you actually don't recommend a revenue neutral carbon price. You recommend some of it, uh, some of the proceeds going to supporting R&D through DOE, uh, and then some maybe going to especially affected communities by climate change. What's the thinking here? My view is that uh, government revenue, uh, the you know, no particular part of the economy should have first claims on new sources of government revenue, uh, and that it's Congress and the president's job to sort out uh, how to allocate that revenue. Uh, and actually, we went back and forth about saying nothing about that versus signaling a little bit uh, about, well, some R&D, because there is a clear market failure there. Uh, and, you know, the, you would be blind not to... Uh, to, you'd be blind if you can't see the some of the inequality issues that have grown in the last several decades uh, and passing a policy that without some rebating uh, is likely or certain to exacerbate inequality uh, seems like maybe not such a hot idea. So that's why we pulled those two out. But at the end of the day, I kind of think government revenues are government revenues, and that's Congress and the administration's job uh, to allocate them. But, you know, having said that, yeah. I will say uh, that's my own particular view. Uh, I'm not elect, no one's elected me to anything. Uh, and uh, I think uh, I think there is a strong political case uh, and, and with merit uh, for making sure uh, that lower income Americans are uh, fixed up from this and not just a particular class of lower income Americans, but all lower income Americans. And the, you know, carbon tax or cap and trade revenues from cap and trade provide an easy and straightforward way to do that. Do we have empirical evidence of carbon tax effectiveness? Oh, my goodness. This is like such a false thing. <laughs> uh, do we have evidence? Yes. The European uh, ETS is cooking along. Uh, and it's ratcheting down uh, total emissions year by year, and uh, it's doing it much less expensively than would be done otherwise. Uh, the California cap-and-trade market has been going for, I don't know, maybe a decade now. Uh, Reggie on the East Coast has been going. Uh, by some measure, you know, 20% uh, of global CO2 emissions prices, uh, uh, so, sorry, 20% of global CO2 is covered uh, by a carbon price. So, Look, we can all point to, oh, my God, they didn't pass that referendum in Washington or they've had complications in Australia. But I think on net, there's a lot more evidence of success uh, and continually pointing uh, to the instances where there's been genuine political problems, uh, I think, does not paint an accurate picture or does not paint the complete picture. I think we should just formally bring David into the conversation. David, you've written about border tax adjustments, about avoiding carbon leakage, basically. Can you give us a quick introduction to what they are? So the, one of the key problems with imposing a carbon tax is people worry that if we, the United States or a group of countries imposes a carbon tax, that all that will happen is just industries will shift offshore. So it's just kind of futile, right? It's like trying to squeeze a watermelon in a seed. You just, you just can't get it. And so uh, border tax adjustments are the most popular, most common way that people think about addressing that issue. And, and the idea there is, is, suppose we impose a carbon tax on 
emissions in the United States. I like to think of that as, as domestic production. Uh, any, if we have a border adjustment, any goods that are produced abroad that are imported to the United States would bear the same tax they would have borne had they been produced in the United States. And that eliminates the incentive to shift production abroad. And similarly, any goods that are produced in the United States that are exported can be sold in the, for, the, the tax is rebated so that they can be sold in the foreign country without bearing the tax so that US companies can, can compete in the foreign country without having to move abroad. That's, that's the core idea of the border tax adjustment. I think there's this general sense that like carbon taxes are usually accompanied by a border tax adjustment and that in Europe, you know, they have this ETS and the prices are really starting to bite. And now Europe is like really keen, especially European industry is really quite keen on setting up some kind of border tax adjustment. In the chapter, you write that this is like the traditional setup of a carbon price, that you have a, a, a border tax attached to the carbon price, but that this this uh, setup has a fundamental flaw. So what's the flaw? Yeah, I should say first that I don't think border tax adjustments have been actually implemented anywhere, at least on carbon prices. So there's, they're always talked about, but so far never actually used. Europe is threatening to use one, but I don't think they're in place as far as I know anywhere. And the reason why I think are maybe the two fundamental flaws that people recognize. One is they're extremely hard to implement. Imagine there you are, you're a customs agent sitting in LA and along comes a ship the size of the Ever Given or whatever that ship was called. It's full of shipping containers with stuff in it. And you have to impose a border adjustment on every one of those items. It's essentially impossible to do. And so all the border adjustments that have been proposed are extremely narrow and extremely crude. They just get raw materials, they aggregate tens of thousands of kinds of raw materials into, into just a few categories and impose you know, broad-based border adjustments that are not accurate. And so they're, they're almost impossible to do comprehensively and accurately. And the other problem people recognize is that they can be readily used as a protectionist measure and therefore are potentially illegal under WTO law. But I think actually, let me say that the, the third problem that people don't recognize is that they actually don't work very well. Right? That is, if you look at the studies of uh, carbon taxes with and without border adjustments, you don't see much of an increase in their effectiveness, so how much emissions they'll reduce, and you don't see much of a change in where people think activities will occur. So they're, they're hard to impose, they're potentially illegal, and for all that, they just don't work very well. Okay, so how do we fix that? Well, I think the way, the way to think about this problem of what's called leakage, the shifting of activities offshore, is, is to think about what drives it. That is, why would an industry or some other activity move from, say, the United States to a foreign country if we impose a carbon tax? And what, what drives that shift is going to be the increase in the price of energy because of the carbon tax seen in the United States, and the, the, the price of energy in the foreign country will seem lower than it will seem in, in the United States. So the way to think about fixing it is to focus the policy on how, when we impose a carbon tax, how it affects the price of energy seen in foreign countries relative to the price seen here. That, that's kind of the, the core. This, the second piece of that is where we impose the carbon tax in the economy. So upstream or downstream affects the global price of energy. So imagine we impose a carbon tax on the extraction of fossil fuels. So on the supply of energy. 
Now, what does that do? It contracts the supply of energy in the United States. Our suppliers will see a lower price and they reduce their supply and it increases the global price of energy abroad. The alternative is supposed to be impose a tax on the demand of energy, demand for energy, right? So on either production or on consumers, right? They reduce their demand for energy, how much they use, and that lowers the global price of energy, right? The key in our, in our chapter of the book was to suggest what we can do is combine these taxes that tend to cause increases in the price of energy with taxes that tend to cause the price of energy to go down in such a way that the price of energy seen in foreign countries relative to the United States stays roughly on par. And that, what we can show, is effectively eliminates the incentive for leakage. So what's that specific combination? <laughs> uh, what's the specific combination of the policies to avoid that? You're like, what's the alchemy? So here's how we do it. And what we can do it is a way that's simple and legal. Right. So what we what we propose doing is imposing a tax on extraction equal to the at the social cost of carbon. And then we would have what we call maybe semi or partial border adjustments, but the border adjustments would only apply to imports and exports of energy. And they would be at say half the rate or a lower rate than the tax on the extraction. And what does that do? The border adjustment on the energy means that any, any energy that's imported to the United States would bear a tax at that border adjusted rate. Mm-hmm. Any energy that's exported from, you know, extracted in the United States and exported would have a rebate at that border adjusted rate. And effectively what that does is mean that any energy that's used in the United States in production would bear a tax at that border adjusted rate. Right? So what it does is move some of the tax on extraction, which is at the social cost of carbon, onto production. So it moves the tax from the supply side to the demand side. Very simple to implement because we know all the carbon molecules across the border with great accuracy already. And it's legal because we know it's legal to impose border adjustments on things across the border. The legal problem with border adjustments generally is that the carbon itself emitted in the foreign country never actually crosses the border. And so that was what potentially caused it to be illegal. This proposal only taxes carbon molecules as they cross the border and therefore is clearly legal under the WTO. So how does that solve, and maybe I missed this, but how does that solve, like, I understand that how that would basically capture all the energy coming into the system and it wouldn't put U.S. producers at a disadvantage. But how would that solve the issue of U.S. manufacturers having to pay the higher cost of energy uh, and then when they're making these locational decisions, when they're deciding where to place their factories and where to locate growth and employment. Uh, You know, if all of the energy in the U.S. is taxed, but this system isn't touching energy, any of the energy outside the U.S., wouldn't that affect the locational decisions that manufacturers might make? And that is the whole reason we would put a carbon tax in the first place because we or carbon price in the first place is because we want to avoid that kind of locational decision. Well, again, the core idea is that by combining these taxes on the supply and demand of energy, the U.S. is effectively controlling the effect of these taxes on the price of energy seen in foreign countries. And so by doing that, the U.S. manufacturer wouldn't see either very much or at all a, a lower price of energy if they were to shift abroad. Is the kind of core idea. So it eliminates or reduces the incentive to shift abroad. And is that because they're getting the rebate or is that because they're because the U.S. policy is adjusting the full global energy market. Sorry if I'm not following here. So the, 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 
<laughs> I tried to explain this so many times and never managed to get it right. Uh, the, the tax on, on the supply of energy, so extraction of energy, yeah, right, it contracts the U.S. supply of energy, and that pushes up global prices. So it's going to make the prices seen in foreign countries look higher. The tax on the demand of energy in the United States is going to push down global prices. It makes the, makes the price seen in foreign countries seem lower. Those two things kind of roughly offset. And so the, the U.S. manufacturer, the U.S. extractor, you know, the U.S. entity is not going to see a dramatic change in the price of energy no matter where they're located. It's kind of the core idea of the model. And what we, can, what we show, actually, when we simulate it, is you get dramatically higher emissions reductions when you implement the tax this way than if you implement it traditionally. Now, why do you get these dramatic emissions reductions? Well, you, first of all, you're, you're, you're reducing or eliminating leakage, so you're, you're not seeing those shifts offshore. And second of all, by controlling the price of energy in, seen globally because of these activities, you're, you're able to kind of also affect emissions in other countries as well. So you assume- I think that's, Rob, maybe it's worth getting David to hammer this point. Uh, on the normal BTA thing, uh, you're reducing, like, wait for it, wait for it. You're reducing the price of energy around the world. Uh, and his, okay, and so what happens when the price, and David flew by that, but what happens when the price of energy goes down? Uh, there's a lot more usage of it. And so that is like I, I don't, I, I don't, I hesitate to speak for David, but I think that is the enemy that David is trying to kill. Is that fair, David? Right. The eye of the ball, the ball. If you want to keep your eye on the ball, is always the price of energy seen abroad. This is driving leakage and driving the bad things. And so what we want to do is when we design our policy to think about how our policy affects that price. I think there's also a question like. If Europe were to adopt a border tax adjustment, how does the U.S. then respond to that? My understanding is the president would have an ability to respond to that in some way without congressional input, but it may not be the best for transatlantic re relations. Well, so let me, uh, let me say two things. In, in the yeah. Wexford-Markey bill, which is the closest we've ever come to a carbon tax, that bill authorized the president at some point in the future, I believe it was 10 years in the future, to impose border adjustments on imports from countries that didn't have comparable prices at, at that point in time. So it was an explicit authorization in that yeah. bill. Had that passed, the president would have had the authority. The second thing is if, if Europe were to impose its border adjustment, I guess the, the president would then probably look at whether he can retaliate or not, whether he would claim that some kind of unfair trade barrier mm -hmm. and could use his tariff authority to retaliate. And that's kind of the, the fear of a border adjustment that would lead to those kinds of retaliations and effectively a trade war. Can you walk up how like the game of theory, <laughs> can you walk through us like how the game theory of the international relations might happen here? Like what should policymakers think about on the international scene as they implement a mechanism like this? Well, they, they don't want to, well, two things. One is they don't want to have foreign countries have an incentive to claim we're manipulating trade and have a, you know, create a trade war. That's just kind of non-carbon side of it, but that would be bad. That's what Europe is risking right now. But the other thing is they, they want to have whatever system we impose cause foreign countries to want to also, also join that coalition, also want to be part of the carbon pricing. But because again, the broader the base, the more energy globally that's subject to the tax, the, the more effective it is. Is there a possibility that like what we've learned over the past few years is that the global trade regime is more stable than we tend to give it credit for and it can handle a little turbulence because 
like firm supply chains are already spread out over lots of countries anyway. And so, you know, maybe some kind of punishing mechanisms, some kind of like club to hit people over the head would, would actually, it might not necessarily be clear to American consumers on politically salient timelines that it was happening, but uh, it would uh, affect longer term decisions that like do the work we want it to do in terms of, you know, decarbonization. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'd, I'd be curious how much uh, production shifted away from China under Trump's tariffs. I just don't know how stable those those are, even in the short term. Those are complicated questions. I mean, I think the most, you know, just to come back to carbon pricing, I think the most important or a, a very important feature of carbon pricing is it becomes something that can be traded in international negotiations for reductions elsewhere. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the reduction of a ton of CO2 emissions in Mumbai and Moscow have the same effect on Americans as a reduction of a ton of uh, CO2 emissions that takes place in the most sanctified location in the Bay Area. Where, uh, and it's all the same for the planet. Uh, and we should make, I think we should be designing uh, climate policy and carbon pricing policy with that at the front and center of our mind. Like, great, we want to reduce things efficiently in the U.S., but how are we going to leverage that into reductions elsewhere around the world? And how does that, I mean, I know we're right at the end of time, but let's get into the political version, like the great political questions of the carbon price, uh, which will never be resolved, and we'll have a carbon price, and even then we'll keep arguing about it. <laughs> I think the arguments against that you hear from like Brian Deese, you know, uh, the the sovereign Lord Emperor of American economic policy right now. I think he would probably not disagree with you uh, if you said a carbon price is good and that it's very efficient and that it's not even inherently regressive. I think the argument that you know we're hearing from Biden folks is more yes, but the call the costs fall across everyone in extremely politically salient ways. And, you know, maybe is there a less, slightly less efficient option to do just direct technological support for the, the technologies that we care about that that make decarbonizing cheap, uh, you know, to reduce learning curves on those technologies, to um, uh, spread a little bit of that kind of support for decarbonization throughout U.S. policy uh, rather than by imposing an extremely salient energy tax, even if it would be very efficient. Look, I, I think yeah. they're trying to achieve two things. Uh, well, first of all, let's just back up. What are the yeah. market failures that are causing the climate problem to be such a big deal? They're one, you can pollute for free, basically. Uh, and two, uh, there's uh, all kinds of R&D uh, spillovers, particularly in the early stages, uh, but even R&D, where the last one is demonstration. Uh, and the government has a key role in uh, solving both of them. And I think the Biden administration's uh, announcements and plans and bills that they're going to send to Congress, it's incredibly laudable. Uh, should, they should be lauded for recognizing like the, the centrality of making these investments. Um, they are also very focused on inequality. And as I said earlier, like the last several decades have highlighted uh, how important that is. And my own view is that this, they have come to the conclusion 
that you have to be able to address climate and inequality in the same vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I'm not sure that's true. I think decoupling them uh, would uh, be more efficient. And I think, uh, and you know, they're more expert than I am on the politics. So I'm, I'm not going to get too far out on a limb on the politics, but I don't think that's been tried very clearly. Uh, that, that's one. And two, even if you wanted to couple them, uh, like, is there anything more salient than people receiving a check every month uh, from the proceeds of uh, carbon taxes or auctions? I, I, you know, I don't, it's hard to think of something. Yeah. And, and it would be more broad based. Oh, I, I just, I just think, I think carbon tax relies on trust on this thing that's invisible, that people will respond to prices, both in terms of how much, what they do and, where they invest and how technology works, and and it's it's just fundamentally hard to hard to believe that when you don't see it. Whereas when you whereas you have a subsidy, I'll pay you to do this or I'll order you to do this if it's a regulation. It, it's easier for people to understand, but it, but it's also less less effective and more expensive, right? So it's it's kind of requires you know either a lot of study or jumping into the deep end of the pool and you know believing in markets to really think the carbon tax is better. But I think a lot of studies shows that it will be. Yeah, if I could just attach myself to David's super important point here. Uh, there is a deep skepticism about, in many instances, but it's especially true uh, around climate, that if you can't see, touch, or feel like the wind turbine or the more insulated home or whatever it is, then it's not real. Uh, and that insecurity that we have, that it, you could almost think of it as like an engineering viewpoint of that world, but of the world, but like that insecurity that if you can't see, touch, and feel, it's not actually happening, uh, is I think leading us to choose much more expensive ways to confront the climate problem. And undoubtedly, uh, leading us to confront the climate problem with much less vigor on net, if you want to measure it in tons, tons, tons. And I think that is the only thing the planet cares about is tons. I'm going to give you the last word, but I think my question is, I feel like these markets per se might be driving some of the rhetoric about these issues. When I look at the system, I don't see an anxiety about markets, about the invisibility of markets or the functioning of markets. I think people know markets work. I see more an anxiety about the political costs of a carbon price, about what the cost would be to like these extremely tangible national assets, like a production base, like steel makers, <laughs> like having, you know, steel and semiconductor foundries that do work here. And which may not be a particularly economically valuable thing to have, especially in like a a model where it all works out over time, but they are very valuable for political reasons and for maybe geostrategic reasons to policymakers. Um, and like one thing I think in this conversation that's kind of standing out is like there's no doubt a global carbon price would work. But I think when we get into these questions of like what this would mean for the U.S. and the current global trade regime or for U.S. heavy manufacturers who are important for you know one political reason or another, it's, it's harder for, for me to draw out how these policies might work or not work. These are questions that like politicians are willing to pay a lot of money to solve, and they're very salient to them. So how would you comfort, you know, a politician who says, I'm sure this is the most efficient way to solve this, but I'd really like to keep making climate policy after 2022, and I need to win an election to do that. 
And if I impose a carbon price, I'm not going to win an election. Because it seems like those are the concerns that are keeping a carbon tax out of the policy conversation right now. So, how, David, how will you answer this? You should go first, I think. I think some of the political class maybe understands the power of markets, but a lot don't. So I'm not sure that they are, you know, kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. I know this is better, but I'm actually not going to do it. I think some don't internalize it. It's, it's a very unintuitive concept. And yeah. then, of course, the non-political class, who they have to, re- who they respond to, they should respond to, also have a hard time internalizing this power where they want to, they want to see something. They want to see a home ordered to be made more energy efficient, even if that's very costly and not effective, because they, you know people want to see the action. And so the politicians are partly responding to how difficult it is to understand markets by the constituents, and partly it's it's them. The political class also doesn't internalize it. And on the, on the question of, you know, what about heavy manufacturing and jobs, things like that, I think we can solve that within a carbon tax regime by designing it correctly and going to regulation saying you heavy steel producer or you manufacturer, cement manufacturer, have to do things in a certain way. That has the same effects. It's going to raise their price the same way a carbon tax will. So you haven't solved the location and leakage issue just by going to a regulatory approach. Do you think that's the kind of policy? Look, I think there's clearly many coalitional effects here. Um, In some ways, I think this testifies to how small the Coalition for Climate Action is right now in the US. Um, I haven't reported on them. I don't feel like I'm comfortable commenting on them or refereeing a conversation about them. Do you feel like that's what's keeping carbon prices out of the policy forum right now? I I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, because like on the pure... And I, I look, David and I, you give us enough time, we can come up with a admittedly somewhat complex version of carbon pricing that will, A, deal with, uh, uh, will address the very important and critical issue of low-income households fa- disproportionately facing it, and B, uh, make sure that heavy industry and its central role in the American ethos and the American sense of self uh, and in politics, both of them can be protected. Both groups can be protected. Uh, uh, And so I admit that is not the easy button of carbon pricing. You'd have to work out some details. Uh, But I, you know, those plans are out there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And you still don't. So so I don't know. Is it because they're complicated or because people don't believe you can actually fix it up? I don't really know. But like it, it is frustrating to hear it as a critique because it can totally be fixed up. I want to just end this quickly and say, OK, I want to give you both the last 30 seconds or a minute. You have Brian Deese here or you have like Joe Manchin here. Uh, why should they put carbon pricing in the infrastructure bill? I would say that we, we have to be concerned about the effect of the carbon tax on U.S. industries. It's a completely legitimate concern, but we can design the carbon tax in a way that, that can address those problems without imposing border adjustments or without using border adjustments. Yeah, I think like all uh, administrations, the Biden administration in the moment requires uh, hitting multiple targets at once. Uh, and I think uh, that carbon pricing of effectively defi- uh, designed is the best way to hit uh, the targets of uh, dealing with the climate crisis uh, 
ensuring that inequality is reduced in the country uh, and uh, protecting uh, um, um, American industries. And I think all that can be done in a way that has good politics attached to it if you have checks sent to people's houses uh, with the revenues from the carbon tax. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts.